Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. This week, I'm joined by Stephanie Waite, co-founder of ChangeNerd. ChangeNerd is a community focused on everything change management. Their mission is to build the world's largest open source community to help enterprise professionals access just-in-time expertise. Prior to co-founding ChangeNerd, Stephanie led learning and development for a prominent hospital in Chicago. And in this episode, we talk about all things change and change management. We get into frameworks for change management. We talk about the psychology of change, and we talk about some uh, practical tips and advice that people can use if they are trying to change something for themselves or if they are leading their organization and the people in it through change. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Stephanie is uh, an expert in all things change management. Without further ado, here is Stephanie Waite. And we are live. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, O'Brien. This is fun. I mean, part of the fun for me about doing this is taking all the interesting people that I know and recording conversations because I, I always enjoy sitting down and learning from you and how you think about learning and development, change management, and, and the different projects that you take on. And so would love if you could just start off by pitching Change Nerd and the work that you are doing right now. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I know I already thanked you, um, but thank you for the sentiments. Um, I would also echo the same one to you um, in saying that you are one of those people that I love sitting down and and chatting with. So this is actually an excellent way to spend uh, this next hour together. Uh, So thank you again. So a little bit about Change Nerd. So Change Nerd essentially um, is an online digital community of practice for people who are what I like to call kind of the HR misfits, but really people who are in the change space. So anyone who is an independent practitioner, consultant, leading large-scale change initiatives, anyone who is internal to an organization who leads uh, project management or change management. And then we have a lot of individuals in the change nerd community who are also executives. So people really leading that large-scale enterprise organizational uh, change. And that could be anything from culture resets to continuing on with sort of transforming the way that you lead culture to DEI initiatives, to learning and development, to leadership development, you get the point. So what Change Nerd is there to do is provide an opportunity and a community, which is one of our deep core values, for all of these people to come together and ask questions and really gel together to solve the same challenges and problems that they're solving across the world. We have people from Bahrain, we have people from Mexico, we have people from Canada, we have people all over the US. Um, it really, it's a global online community for individuals to connect with one another. 
Another one of our deep values is inclusivity. And that's so important for Brian Hampton, who is my business partner um, and co-founder, for us to offer topics that are really provocative and hot right now and provide people the, the opportunity to talk about how do the current state of affairs interact and engage with change management or what we call business transformation in some areas. So with that being said, this year, one of our big deep missions is really connecting the right people with the right people. And what we found with the current climate and the current state of affairs going on in the world, that people were really looking to connect with the right jobs or the right gigs. So we actually launched Change Our Gigs this year, which connects the right people to the right gigs. So really, we're here as a support mechanism and community for individuals to connect to each other, first and foremost. And then secondly, really build an inclusive environment for individuals to get those right gigs. And what is your origin story? I mean, change management is a elusive concept, right? It's like, well, what does that mean? And how do you become qualified to be a quote unquote change management professional? So like, what what's your origin story and how you came to this table? Yeah. So we won't go as far back as my actual origin, right? Um, but we know uh, wherever the so, story starts for you, you let me know. Right. So essentially, I don't consider myself a formal change practitioner. I know a lot of people on the podcast right now are probably gasping, right? But I love that because change management is such an inclusive practice. And one of my core values is really thinking about how you can transform your career to essentially affect change. My mission for myself is helping people get to where they want to be, right? And what does that require? It requires a lot of small changes or learning new things along the way. So you'll I just kind of want to set up that context so that you hear my story and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. So my origin story, I actually have a STEM degree. So I studied biology, chemistry, physics, earth science, and I actually went into secondary education. So I taught up in Wisconsin and Racine. It was the most incredible experience. Um, I taught really the, the remediation program is what it was called at the time, but it was traditionally for students who were alternative learners. So what that looks like is students who are differently abled, students who may be second language learners, students from all over the world who might you know, have family in the United States or in that area. And it really taught me so much about cultural competence. It taught me a lot about just myself as being a white female, being in a room of of students where I was technically the minority, and really understanding my goal. And our goal together in the classroom was to help people get from where they were to where we needed them to be, but also having fun along the way. So I learned a lot about classroom management, thinking about how to do behavioral management and behavioral change. So I hope all the listeners and sort of as I'm explaining the story, you're starting to see the essence and the seeds of really where I am now. As a result of that, I started to do a lot of international work. So, you know, I visited the Galapagos. I was um, leading workshops in China and Inner Mongolia and really thinking about I had to, you know, work with a translator for the first time in my life, you know, going through English to Mongolian, but then we needed to have Mandarin in between there and then back from that and then you know, Mandarin to Russian and then Russian back to Mandarin to me. So, you know, being so young in that space and being over, you know, in a country where, again, I I was so blessed and so grateful to spend so much time there. You know, you also had to understand that, you know, culturally it couldn't be, you know, the West coming over and sharing, this is what you should be doing. It was really this collective community experience where we were just sharing thoughts about how we could help kids learn things that were new. And then in this case, 
through different cultures, different languages. And then with that, obviously, my eyes were just so open to how I could affect change at a much larger scale. So started to really think about how I could do consulting or working internal to an organization. And being a teacher, you don't ever think that that's even possible, right? So the great part about it is I had some really amazing connections and friends here in Chicago that really gave me the chance to come in and very humbly support their organizations in the organizational development space, or what now it's attractively called that. And then really build out global learning projects and global learning programs you know, across the world where it wasn't about the push out, like you need to. It was about creating this attractive process for people saying, I want to. And that was a turning point for me where I learned that behavioral change, learning and development, change management, business transformation, whatever hotspot word you want to use now, it's about getting people to really want to do it and using that sort of choice psychology, giving people a choice because we want people, especially in leadership, to step up and into that moment. So to close out this story, my origin, which might be more than what you ever bargained for, I want to highlight the diversity of my background, that it wasn't a straight line to change management and respectfully to all of the individuals who are out there as 30-year veteran change practitioners, I have such an incredible and gracious respect for you because it is such a practitioner profession. And then obviously learning more about myself, learning the corporate space, working in a tax advisory space, working in an insurance space, working in public education. You know, I wanted to really formalize my education. So I had the opportunity to go to Northwestern um, and get my master's in science and learning organizational change. And that's where for me, everything formalized. And I saw this greater world where I could bring my values of creating positive impact on community, my learning and development background, right? Where anytime you ask someone to do something new, that's a change. And anytime you ask someone to change, they need to learn something new. So those are so symbiotic and so carefully constructed with each other that I feel so prepared to sort of help move organizational cultures or help unlock and activate the people potential within organizations. So with that being said, I had the opportunity to work for a healthcare organization and a hospital here and really lead their function in leadership and organizational development. And learning that really sort of supported, again, that cultural competency. It brought in my science background. It allowed me to build out a practice practice, right? Both on the coaching side, the consulting side, and building large-scale systemic you know, learning and development and leadership development, which I think for all of you listening right now, if you're in the learning space, you might have just fallen into it. That's okay. You might have had a direct line there. That's okay. I guess why I wanted to share my story with you is because it's okay if you take divergent paths because you're able to now speak more authoritatively on what your current path is. So was able to launch my uh, own consulting company here uh, in uh, January. So 7Air. And um, actually, a lot of what I just said really sort of meets that. 7 being the most idyllic number and the most ideal state. And then air being the only scientific matter that really expands to its container at room temperature. So that's what I help people do is really you know, sort of lead the charge around designing your ideal future state and then expanding to get there. So, and Change Nerd is really a part of my journey to get there as well. We have this amazing community and we're able to, to sort of um, symbiotically grow and, and make a positive impact on our world. So <laughs> there's a lot there to unpack. I pause because my head is being, you talk about air filling the room. My head's being stretched in a bunch of different directions right now, trying to think of where to take. <laughs> The next, where's the next step to take after that? When you say, when we talk about change management, you touched on this a little bit 
talking about what change nerd is, how small of a change, I guess, like what's the smallest level of change that you think of qualifies under the change management heading? So this answer is going to be very kitschy. Any change. I usually tell this story of uh, my niece who she's what I call a polar bear. She doesn't put her coat on ever when she goes outside. And, you know, that's change for her, right? Like you have put your coat on before you go outside. And, you know, for me, it's I'm using these techniques of creating a sense of urgency. Like, oh my gosh, we have to go outside right now. Quick, get your jacket. You know, I'm using this building a coalition, which is sort of the second step in, in Cotter's model of change. You know, I have to get everybody on board with that. So if her sister puts on her coat, okay, then that can usher through. So I won't go into to more detail, but you can see that change it qualifies. Another one that I often give for people is, you know, let's say they stop serving coffee in the cafeteria. And I know every single person listening right now is like... Anarchy. Yeah. It's like... First of all, I'm going to quit because I come here every morning at 7.59 for my coffee. Or there are other people who are like, why is this lady talking about coffee? I don't drink coffee. Like, it doesn't matter, right? And then there's every single thing in between where people might be self-directed and say, well, okay, at least I know the date and the time that the coffee is not going to be served anymore, right? And obviously with COVID, please forgive the analogy, but just go with me here, Okay. And with that being said, they might be self-directing and saying, well, I guess I'm just going to have to build in another 15 minutes to stop at my favorite coffee place before I come to work or make it at home, right? So that also qualifies as a change. And I often use that as an example whenever I'm teaching change and transition management or business transformation, because what I've just described is change as the event. Change is an event. It's a point in time. It's a light switch on. It's a light switch off. I apply pressure. You know, think about too, if you've ever been in a room in the morning or night when somebody's turned the light on accidentally and they go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, right? The change is the event. You turn the light on. I wasn't prepared for it. We have to think about the transition that people are going through as well to that change. So when you turn on a light, my eyes aren't transitioned yet. I have a physical and visceral response. So a lot of what I do is not just change management. It's also really looking at the people side of change, which is really defined as transition management. So any any size of change can use these principles. Okay. And so let's talk about the principles. And I don't know that you need to define them, but I guess let's start with the models. Like what you mentioned Cutter's model, I think you said. What are the models of change management, or maybe it's just that one, that you see being used most effectively? Like I, one of the things I really like exploring and that I've been paying more attention to is frameworks. So like what what are the key frameworks when it comes to change management? Yeah, that's great. And the short answer is there's so many out there, right? And the idea here is really to think about what is the change that you're trying to lead? There are organizational development or organizational design frameworks too, like the McKinsey 7S model, etc. And obviously with my training at Northwestern, I could probably rattle off 20. What I'll share with you are the two that I always use and I'll give you the reason why. I often use, and I overlay the two, I use Cotter's model. So K-O-T-T-E-R, John P. Cotter. He's often referenced in Harvard Business Review. He's very well-researched. He really focuses a lot on change management, right? The event side of it. Now, people could argue as well, who are listening to this podcast, that he also does the people side of change. Absolutely. 
And I go even a step deeper and actually overlay William Bridges' model, which he really talks about transition management. Bridges' model focuses mainly on the people side of change and the internal psychological response that individuals have to change. What he talks about is there are three phases or three zones or three, whatever you want to call them, three steps, um, which I often liken to a trapeze. Someone letting go of the first trapeze, flying through the air, visualize this with me, everybody, flying through the air and sort of grasping on to that second trapeze. Now, there could be a person on that trapeze. It could just be a bear trapeze. But at the end of the day, I had to essentially get you to go up to the platform to the first trapeze. You've linked onto that already. So that's already enough, enough work that I've gotten you to create a habit. I have to get you to swing back and forth and build momentum, right? And then there's a point at which I have to expect you to let go, lose, and end at that first trapeze. And that's actually the first phase of bridges is losing, letting go, and ending. So it's literally that is his coin term for that first phase. And then you fly through the air. You, you decide to let go, or maybe as many of you on the, the, uh, the, the podcast are thinking about how I've had to pry people's fingers off that first trapeze to get them to fly through the air, to build up enough momentum. People are flying them through the neutral phase or the neutral zone is what they call it. And that's really a point in time where people tend to focus on anxiousness or anxiety or, oh my gosh, am I, are we really doing this? I, I can't see the new beginning as sort of the third phase. I can't see that new trapeze, but I'm just going to trust in my leadership that I can fly through the air. Now, what happens during that time is sometimes people get a little nervous or if we aren't celebrating small wins or keeping that momentum going, people might turn around and try to glom back on to that old trapeze. Well, we know which way people are going. So hopefully there's a safety net there, right? So what I mean by this and why I love this framework is he talks about... <laughs> there's the a gram side. There's just a great image there of the, of the person flying through the air and just turning back around as the trapeze swings away. And it's just like, there's no way to catch it again. You know, you just <laughs> Exactly. Whip. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, O'Brien, for providing that illustration. I, I'm sure many of you are laughing on the, the podcast right now because either A, you... About that, B, you've been the leader of a change or an initiative or project or transformation where you've seen people do that. And it's almost like you're the coach on the sidelines, like the trapeze coach, you know, by the safety net going, no, 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 don't turn back around. I promise, keep going forward. And sometimes it's just inevitable. So that's why change and transition management is so important to do prior to when and spend the 80% of energy building out your change and transition planning. And even more importantly, with that inclusive lens, thinking about how every single person who, as I you know, talked to you about the different reactions before to people not having coffee anymore in their cafeteria or coffee available, think about it. It was the same change for everybody. But the internal psychological reactions that everyone had to change were so different. So that's what you as a practitioner, even just an internal consultant, external consultant, executive leader, someone thinking about starting their own business, anyone who's in this space, you're leading your clients through changes. You're leading your clients through new processes. I want you to think about that coffee analogy and meet them where they are. That's really the whole crux of transition management or business transformation to have it being long-term and sustainable behavior change. And that is the crux of any work that I do I don't want my clients to come back to me for the same thing because that means I haven't done my job 
and probably neither of them. So let's work together symbiotically to make sure this is going to be a long-term sustainable behavior change. So to close that up, the last trapeze, I just wanted to harp on that. It's called the new beginning. That's the third phase. And the new beginning is all about building institutionalized habits and really making sure that that is the new way of doing things is now the way of doing things. And I can't harp on that enough. The new normal, I eliminate that from vocabulary because you're always going to have a new normal every day. People's emotional states are going to be different. They're going to want to try new things. So I talk about what do we want to do now and what's our ideal state and how do we get there? So yeah, it's, it's one of the most incredible. And both Cotter and Bridges are very well researched. They're out there in the, the Google universe or the internet universe, whatever you want to call it. So you don't have to have a licensure necessarily to read up on it or have a book club within your organization. Um, I'm working with a client right now who's doing a book club on the transition management and they invite me back you know, uh, each time that they do their discussion. And, and I just think that that's so important to be self-directed in this learning. You don't have to have a fancy credential to do excellent change and transition management. This might be a, a stupid question. No. I'm sure a lot of these would be stupid questions, but... <laughs> no question is stupid, Brian. I was a teacher, come on. You said, okay, so this isn't like the new normal. You don't like that term because the new normal changes every day. So is this just an exercise in getting people, getting your entire group of people comfortable with constant change? Or is it on you as the leader who's leading these changes to be guiding your people through each individual change as its own thing? Does that make sense? Like, Should you be thinking about getting all of your people through each individual change or about getting them just used to the fact that we're changing all the time? Yeah, that's so great. And, you know, I'll I'll sort of kick it back to you. You said you like frameworks and sort of the vocabulary words, right? So whenever I'm leading change or I'm working with a client, I'm working with anybody who's thinking about leading a, let's say, large change, you want to have that in the back of your mind, right? You're going to use the same framework for that large change. It just may take a little longer. But what I like to do is talk about what we call the incremental changes that are occurring over time that are small bites right? Versus trying to slam the whole cake in your face and eat the whole cake at once. We want to take bites of it. Do I like it? Okay. We might want to tweak the recipe next time and eating the cake in small bites to get to that end goal of eating the full cake. So when you think about it, I love to say it's not about the leader sort of getting your team through the change. I like to take what my, from what my roots are, right? Learning and development. I like to take a learning approach, which is if I can teach you to fish, you can always fish. So if I can actually teach you the change and transition management frameworks yourself and we as a department or we as a team or me along with my leadership, you know, sort of group or me with my clients, we're already speaking the same vocabulary. We're talking the same concepts. They already know the frameworks and all we have to do is put in the content into what it is versus me trying to lead you through it. I have to sort of pull you at some point or maybe push you at some point. And you may not understand the why we're doing it this way, right? So I would actually you know, dig into what language are you using as a team to talk about leading yourself, leading each other through change and transition or business transformation or leading new processes? What sort of our own process and framework that we're going to agree to and commit to that we like that works culturally for us? 
And once everybody has that and you continue to use it and revisit it, culturally now it's integrated. So instead of it being the new way of doing things, as we talked about earlier, it's the way of doing things. Plus, in addition, that allows people control over their own processes. My style is very different than someone else's. And I'm not everybody's cup of tea and neither is that other person. But if we can agree on the way that we're going to do something or our end goal to get us through the change, I can constantly apply those same principles. I can constantly apply those same frameworks every time I feel like I'm going through a change. And O'Brien, you can probably you probably know this already, but I have a very high change tolerance. I have a very high stress tolerance. And I have come to know that as a leader or an executive leader for that matter, I know that not everybody does. So I make sure that I check in with my people to say, hey, where are you? How are you feeling? What what, what size of change are you thinking about? And I actually use, you know, sort of a, a framework myself to check in with people just to assess because a big change that someone's going through might be super small for me. So I don't think I need to explain the framework, but for that individual, they need it. They need to really sort of, you know, dig into it more deeply. So if you can teach your people or your people can learn the same framework and vocabulary, they can lead themselves through the change, which then anything you would put with that is a, is a beautiful catalyst and and a cherry on the top of the Sunday. So, so I'm going to push back on eliminating the new, your term, the term, the new normal, because it sounds like the new normal should be the framework not the specific change of the day. So if the if the normal is the framework, then it doesn't matter what you're actually doing, what the business practice is, you you have something that you can fall back on that's consistent while evolving the rest of the actual day-to-day business. Look at uh, this is like step 1 of, of transformation and transition, defining your term. So, yes, you just redefine new normal and I I love it. Yeah, you know, the way that you do things, right, is a lot of times where people made, um, and I get this question a lot, like, why would I do that differently? Why would I make the change? And quite frankly, I don't blame you. Who wants to spend extra money or extra energy doing something differently where I don't know what the outcome is going to be? In addition, people have competing commitments, right? They have these underlying things where it's in your mind, you think, well, if I do it that new way, is my job at risk? Or if I do it that new way, does that mean that I am going to get more stuff on my plate? Which means that underlying, I'm not going to spend more time with my family. When people are leading through change and transition, the framework gives you kind of the pressure alleviation point to say, let's talk about what these competing commitments might be to unhook what potentially might be viewed as resistance or viewed as I don't want to do it that way or the new normal to use your term. So when you remove new normal, and you remove that phrase because people become desensitized to it anyway. It's yeah. like saying the same word over and over. Yeah, I'm being tongue in cheek when I'm pushing back on the yeah. new normal. I, I think one of the reasons that I like and have been thinking about frameworks so much is exactly what you're talking about, which is if you have a framework, then you can solve almost any problem, right? Rather than trying to solve a specific problem, if you have a framework for how you solve problems, then it doesn't matter what that problem is. You can work through the framework and solve it. And I think where I've seen people get screwed up, let me rephrase, where I've gotten screwed up is where I'm reading about three or four frameworks at the same time and I'm trying to blend them all together. And you know, it just becomes a big mess. Whereas I'm 
leaning right now in my own belief to it doesn't necessarily so much matter which framework is the right framework. Find a decent framework and just make it the way that you do it. And that will lead to a better outcome. And so I think like, especially I had on um, Eric Kershaw talking about personality assessments and it's like, it doesn't, yeah, it kind of matters which one you use depending on what you're trying to get. But the important part is that it becomes common language. And you, I heard you say that too, that like that you have common language that everybody's talking the same. I think you see that go wrong with leadership development a lot where you have a bunch of different frameworks all being used at the same time versus saying, okay, we're just all going to commit to this one. It does, Yeah, there's a bunch of great ones, but we're going to commit to this one and it'll become the common language. And then we can solve all of our leadership issues with this framework versus just trying to solve, you know, play whack-a-mole with leadership issues that come up. Yeah. And I, I think you brought up a great point, which is, you know, what I like to do too is, are we choosing one off the shelf, right? Or are we spending the time, which both of them are fine, right? Like it depends on your problem you're trying to solve. It depends on the time, you know, that you have and sort of the the long-term ideal vision or state of, you know, the culture that you're trying to build. Or are you going to spend the time, right? Saying, you know, what is really our current culture? How, you know, what, what are we trying to get to? And what framework or frameworks or theories or, you know, out, out of industry frameworks are people using to solve the same challenges and problems that we have? And you may be able to borrow from a couple, you know, one peer framework might not be the, the best fit for you. And, you know, in addition, I'm, I'm really in this space too. And, you know, thanks to Northwestern as well is really looking at this design justice space, right? When we think about change and transition management, we think about design thinking versus design justice and, and those concepts. We want to make sure that we're creating an environment where we're checking our assumptions, where we're checking our implicit biases, where, and, and nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm so lucky to have a community of people around me that allow me to think about these things, right? And I think that's so important when you're choosing frameworks or you're choosing theories or you're choosing models, get in a largely diverse set of individuals and the most inclusive that you can to bust every assumption and quite frankly, to create your own culturally relevant internal framework or framework that works best for you to solve the problem that you're trying to achieve. And what you said earlier, you know, step one with me and anytime we're trying to create a solution, everybody has to be so clear on A, the why, right? What's the purpose of why we're doing any of this work? And then secondarily, but sort of a 1B, what is that challenge or problem we're trying to solve? We have to crystallize and create a problem statement much to, you know, as much as I love my science background, it's to my detriment at times to, you know, do the scientific method, starting with your problem statement. We can't jump to hypothesis, right? Our guess until we have a problem statement. What are the variables that we're trying to affect and why? It's got to be step one, especially when you're leading any change in transition uh, or business transformation initiative and or culture transformation. Why are we trying to do or change or you know transcend the culture or do something differently? And then what is that problem we're trying to solve? Now, everybody's on the same page, hopefully, and you revisit that every single time because what you'll start to see, just to your point, different personalities, different personality assessments. I am um, a fan of you know Myers-Briggs or the MBTI. I'm certified in that as well because it's such a low-risk assessment. But you know, different profiles cause you to lead with different letters or different what they call dichotomies, right? So me, I lead with my feeler. I lead with the people. I want to know the people impact right away. But for people who lead with their sensing or their S, they're like, 
hold up, hold up, hold up. What's the data? What problem are we trying to solve? So right there, we're already trying to solve. We don't know what problem we're trying to solve. So I'm going to come at it from the people and I'm going to think you're not hearing me. So especially in change and transition management or business transformation or learning and development initiatives or DEI initiatives, it's so important to really crystallize that problem statement before you jump in to having people divergently think about what potential ways we're going to solve this problem, what information do we need, so that we can actually get to a solution that's going to be robust enough, rich enough, and lead to that long-term sustainable behavior change. One of the things that I see getting in the way of doing this work is time. So what you're talking about, what you just described there, takes time. So like, okay, I'm going to step out for a second. I'm going to think about this critically. I'm going to define it. We're going to set some parameters around it, some goals, some KPIs maybe. So, and then we're going to jump back into the business. But, you know, businesses move, everything's, we're all busy. It feels like everything has to happen now. There's always something else you could be doing. How do you coach people to make that time? Is it just, look, you got to make that time? Or is there is there a way that you coach them to actually make that sacred at the beginning of the process? Yeah. Amazing question. So there are two answers to that, right? One is, you know, I don't want to say that it's, it's not necessarily the work that I need to do to make you believe that this is important, right? That, that's not really the role that I want to play. I want to be the guide for you to catalyze that role or that process. So I just kind of want to start there just in my philosophy and how I coach and just who I am as a thought partner to my client. So that's sort of kind of step one. I want to make sure that we're in this together and I'm here to help facilitate and catalyze that process. And there's got to be that desire and want and need. Is that like, because you said before, I don't want to push you and say, you need to, I want you to be pulling and say, I want to. Absolutely. So it's like kind of that that theme that you're talking 100%. about. 100%. You know, no one wakes up every morning and goes like, I can't wait to be developed. Or like people don't wake up and they go, I can't wait to be managed today. Like anyone, you know, and I'm in this field, right? I don't even want that. So yeah. my goal is really to say, how do we create an environment where everybody knows, you know, kind of our goal together and we're all committing. Now, part of that is my style. It's creating that really low risk, extremely psychologically safe environment because a lot of this stuff is tough. I'm asking you to think differently about how you're leading your practice or you're leading your organization, even though you're so successful. So one little language change. So this is for all my coaches out there or people who are you know, consulting. I never say improve. I never say better. Now, could it slip out every now and then? Absolutely. So I guess never say never, but I never use the words or I try not to ever use the words better or improve because what does that infer? You're not good enough. Yeah. So what I use is I use the words even more. I say, how can we create this so it's even more effective than it was before? How can we do this or how can we create the da, 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 to become even more efficient? How do we become even more effective leaders within the organization in alignment with these three leadership competencies? That small reframe for the problem statement helps people unhook from proving of how great it was to unhooking all of that and saying, wow, we can be even more effective. And we actually take a piece of the way that it was working in the past, honor the legacy, honor the past of how we've gotten here today, which is also a change in transition management technique, and really focus on the future, which, as I said earlier, a lot of, you know, for me, 
seven, that most ideal state, how do we get there and expand to it? I use a lot of positive psychology and I use a lot of ideal state discussion, a lot of appreciative inquiry. How do we get to the new state? What questions do we need to ask to create what that's going to look like? And it helps us do an innate gap analysis to then lead to the process of how we're going to change. So I, I think that's the first thing is really thinking about how are you unhooking yourself? How are you really sort of focusing in on where do we need to get to and really crystallizing what that looks like? The second thing of anytime I'm working with clients or whatnot, we always, no matter how small the change is, roll it up to the highest level possible KPIs with regards to the organization, strategic planning, strategic pillar, whatever fancy word you want to throw out there that organizations use nowadays. We will focus on that. And it is my job to help draw the line and to facilitate the process with you of how whatever I'm doing with you or we're doing together or as a group, or if I'm just coaching you up and building your competence and confidence to go out and internally lead this, we will get to whatever those outcomes are. And it doesn't have to be specific metrics like retention or lower attrition rates. That will come down the line as more liking indicators. But we want to have things that immediately we're able to sort of test or assess to make sure that whatever the time we spend together is effective, is efficient, and and people walk away with at least one thing they're doing differently as a result. That's huge. And we know from making habits, which is what my job is to help y'all make habits, you got to start with one thing. It's a small tweak. It's those disproportionate behaviors. So as a change practitioner to all my change practitioners out there, we know when we try to, again, eat the cake all at once, it very rarely is successful. So try to get those small tweaks, those little behaviors, those little bites to give you large or very impactful results down the line. I think that's one of the hardest things for human beings to do. And I, again, I'll say that self-directed. It's just one of the hardest things for me to do too. It's hard to see far down the road and then help somebody take the next step. You want to help them get down the road. You know, you want to put them in the car and just shoot them there. It's very hard to like slow down and figure out like what's the next step that they need to take because there's still going to be all this other stuff that needs to change. And it's, it's very hard to just like be like, okay, we're going to let that sit and we're just going to help them take this one small step. It's, it's a tough thing to balance in the moment when you're coaching somebody or even just when you're having a conversation with somebody, right? Like that makes me think about political conversations, right? Like if you, or anytime where you have a, have an experience that has opened your eyes to a different perspective, right? To then go back to people who've not had that experience, who don't have that perspective and step them there, you know, one at a time. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to manage. Yeah. You, you know, thank you for making me think about this because I also want to share, you know, to everybody out there, you know, the thing that I love about change and transition management and, you know, anything, right. It, as it's separate discipline is so pragmatic when you think about it, because to your point, I have to get you to see something that you haven't experienced yet. And let alone, I have to get you to see it, but I also have to get you to get there. And I'm, I'm saying that half tongue in cheek because it isn't necessarily my role to get you there. But it is my role to help you or guide you on the side to provide the entire environment in a way that will help you easily choose to get there, right? So why I'm saying this is there are two techniques that I use a lot. And the first one is make whatever you can as visual as, visual as possible. Paint the picture. So whenever you're giving your you know, 
speech or whatever changes coming down the pike, if you want to do a little bit more formally and tap down, make sure you include a slide that is titled the picture or here's the future or the visualization or whatever it is. Because remember, this is going back to my learning roots. Not everybody is an auditory learner. So if you think, oh, I just gave a 30-minute presentation of what new stuff's coming down the pike, they probably heard a very small percentage of that. And let alone their kids are screaming in the background or the dog is, you know, chewing a toy or something. There's so many distractions now. So it's so important to create visuals, especially for individuals if you're working at a global company. You want to be culturally competent to different languages and first languages, right? You want to create as visually perceptive as possible artifacts that you're able to showcase what it's going to look like so I can then visualize myself there. That's the first technique. The second technique is when you're going through the change, and it's actually step five of Cotter's model, is creating small wins. I always pair small wins or celebrating small wins, excuse me, with visualizations. I'm going to age myself a little bit, but do you remember back in the day when you go to the grocery store and they would do like the can drive, like, you know, bring your cans because we're trying to do, you know, like a food drive? Sure. And they would have like a piece of like white butcher paper that somebody kind of like weirdly drew, you know, this was before computers and, you know, huge sort of graphic design. They drew like a thermometer, right? And they had like at the top, it was like, our goal is to get to 500. And then each week they would update, right? So what I'm talking about is think about how that was a change in transition management technique. I created a visual to track the progress to achieve the goal or to achieve the change that we were trying to achieve, which is getting to 500 cans. Now, think back to what that does to Psyche. I can walk into the grocery store every day when it wasn't obviously COVID, so being mindful of that. I could see, oh my gosh, we're only at 10 cans and it's the first week. I'm going to do my part. I got to choose how I contributed to that goal. And some people might have walked in and said, 10 cans, oh, that's too bad, and walked away, right? But now think about when it got close to 500 and it went over 500 to 510 and they would color in, remember, like with a red marker, like they would scribble and it was always like the wrong red, you know what I mean? For the next week, like they (laughs) forgot right? Like which red color marker or, or whatnot. That's okay. Why I'm illustrating this point and this incredible change in transition management technique to you is because it doesn't have to be fancy and it can be free. And nine times out of 10, and that is a totally arbitrary you know, stat that I'm throwing out there, but we went over the goal because what did that do? It controlled the narrative and the data was right there. Nobody's walking in saying, oh, I never see cans. So nobody's ever contributing because they cleared the cans out every day, right? The cans were either there, but I had a point of reference that I could watch the progress myself and choose to contribute getting back to that choice psychology that I talked about. It was actually a nudge, which is one of my favorite books. And you know, the author is just so incredible in talking about, again, that choice psychology. If I could provide references, visual references for you, I also don't need to speak the language as my native language, right? It's there for everybody to see and I can contribute to how I see fit. So I'd say those are two really key factors. And O'Brien, I've seen that done in a week. I've seen that done in a day. Let's drive hard to this making it visual. I've seen that done over the course of a year. One client that I was working with, they had 30 FTEs that were open. And the narrative, or roughly 30, the narrative was, oh my gosh, we're so short staffed. We don't, you know, we, nobody's being hired. And they had like hired like 10 people. So think about that. 
It wasn't visual. The small wins weren't being celebrated. It was assumed by leadership, which is okay. This is why we do change in transition management, that nothing was being progressed. And at the end of the day, what we did was we created boxes on a very visual part of that floor, that organization, where every time they hired somebody, they put their picture up. We hired a new person and they sent out a ding, ding, ding. Here's what happened. And over the course of those couple of weeks, you can start to see how the narrative changed. Oh my gosh, we hired two more people. I can't wait for them to put another you know, picture up. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients. And a lot of the, the clients that I choose to work with are people who are open to thinking innovatively and aren't stuck in the old ways of doing things. Well, they just need to do it, which is your exact point earlier. Well, they just need to do it. It's the change. Yes. And do we want happy change people? <laughs> or do we want people doing the work who stay, who are retained, who are doing that new way of doing things, but now it's the way of doing things. When you can make it fun and engaging for people, that is really where people glom onto the change and become a part of the change. It's that crowd sort of, you know, momentum that you get. So it's not lost on me that what you just said is a perfect example of what you just said. Like you're talking about using imagery and it struck me when you were talking about the thermometer and you talked about it rising up and then you talked about using a different color and you know it would always be different and you're using some humor there you've got that visual anyone who has been through one of those you know or seen that which most of us have like that just becomes a real thing it becomes a real image in your head even though nobody is going to see that image who's listening to this so my question back to you is how did you train yourself to create imagery in the words that you're using? or I mean, maybe you didn't do it on purpose, but you're very good at it. You've done it several times throughout this conversation. So how did you build that skill? Yeah, you know, I want to give a huge shout out, I would say, to uh, my former cooperating teacher um, who, you know, first and foremost, I've kind of always been colorful, right? On my Hogan assessment, it says I'm colorful, Right. And I've learned, you know, sort of That's strategies. a good description of you. I know you well <laughs> enough to say that that's a Thank pretty you. good description of you. <laughs> you, you know, I, I try to use it for the positive, right? To impact, you know, I, I think it was a longstanding experience of being in, and I, I this is no hit on anybody, right? Or their style, just the style that I work best with, which is an engagement style, a, a colorful style. A, you know, I'm using breath and language and the way that I intonate how I truncate my sentences. I learned that very early on going through the University of Wisconsin School of Education program in the sense of not by training, but by doing the work and getting feedback from my people and listening to my students who at the time were seventh graders, who at times had heads on their desks or were, you know, like scribbling. And I was like, oh man, like I'm losing them. And it took me to set aside, and this is so important, I think, when you're doing this work, especially in the learning space, you're, it's not about you. You really have to set that ego aside and understand that you're there for other people. And you're, for me, if I was there to build a community. I was there to build a positive experience because I knew if people had a negative experience, who would want to come back? For me, I don't want to have that. And so I made a vow to myself very early on in my career. And and I was so lucky. uh, This is what I was going to say first and foremost is I was so lucky to have people who chose to be in my life and give me feedback. And I was so open to be able to listen to to it. And some people I did it. I'm not going to lie. And and that's your choice. um, Because 
they were giving me feedback about a person that I didn't want to become. I didn't want to become a cookie cutter of who they were. So I want to say this very carefully as well. You know, I've really chosen mentors and to seek out a community of people who could keep me honest to my, the integrity of who I am and look at that as a positive thing. And you know, that's also one of my leadership principles is finding people who really are authentically and unabashedly they're wanting to be themselves and then saying yay or nay that fits or doesn't fit with the value sets of, the, of an organization and making bold choices to either you know leave those or leave those relationships or keep them a little bit more at a distance and really double down on the ones where I really felt myself and I was able to hone these skills. You know, the best advice I ever got, and I'm going to share with all of you, is um, especially in the United States, and it's very US-centric, especially extroversion, if we want to get into personality assessments, is, you know, the loudest in the room is often heard, right? And the person who speaks over somebody, the person who interrupts you, so often it's shown, it's a sign of respect, espousedly, right? That you step back and you listen to that person. And, you know, for me, I just have the opposite approach where I get very anxious or flustered when people or I would potentially interrupt an individual. I want to make sure that I'm getting the full story and that I'm hearing everything that they have to say because that's going to make me be a better practitioner or a better listener or get the full story, get all the data that I need. So the best advice I ever got was when I was teaching and when the students were loud and crazy and you know whatever. And I don't mean crazy in a negative way. I loved all of them and it was the best experience I ever had. And they challenged me every day. So thank you to all out there who are listening. You were my former student. I actually am where I am because of them. Was actually to tone down the volume and to talk more quietly and to slow your pace and to slow the syntax, which is what I just did here. And so everybody who's listening, you probably took a little bit of a deep breath or you sat a little bit in your chair. O'Brien just smiled. It, I am able You to, lean in, right? You're like, oh, wait, what? Something's going on here. Yeah. yeah. So creating that and using, I, I, ve- I realized very early on that I had two very strong superpowers and it was my energy and my voice. And with those two, you can use those for good or you can use those to not create good situations. Um, and I specifically didn't use bad because, you know, my positive psychology background and in that space, I was able to train my voice and listen to how other teachers or educators or people I wanted to be like, I, I listened to their voice and their, their processing that they did and, and how they showed up on stage. Um, I was also in theater for a short period of time. And that really helped with, I think, confidence, right? And I was able to stand up in, a, in front of hundreds of people and I had to do my job, right? Yeah. Um, I was in sports for a short period of time. So I don't think of being in learning and development or change management or any of the HR functions or people. I don't even like HR. I like people and culture. I like transformation. I like, I actually use people strategy. That's my, my, my most love. That's my highest passion is really designing people strategy. Um, and what I do with, with seven air, it's using all of your superpowers and seeing your community around you who has different superpowers than you and allowing them in and knowing that you're building a community who you're really lifting each other up. And I very quickly, if there are people that, you know, don't speak highly of you in a room or, you know, aren't there to lift you up or aren't getting that direct feedback, I'm very quick to separate, you know, uh, myself because 
life's too short to live someone else's story. And, and so to get back to your specific question, which is how did you get trained in this space? I have great people like you, O'Brien, who we get to have these conversations and, you know, listen to each other and challenge each other and think differently and, you know, really listen to how others operate, who I want to be like, or how, you know, how did they get to their success story? And it's not just in my, my industry, it's, it's everybody. Um, and I'll say some of the best people are people who are, you know, were my students who are much younger than me and, you know, taught me a lot around when I would lower my voice and I would try that to your point and your exact specific behavior change, they would lean in because I, they knew I'm not going to repeat it twice. And I would say that I'm not repeating it twice. So if you miss the direction and they would go, well, Miss Wade's talking or right. Or the people that would continue talking, what, what I would like to call the resistors for all my change practitioners out there, right? I had to choose another technique and it wasn't using my voice for power and control. I was also very aware of my white privilege and the hierarchy that you know race and ethnicity played as well in the classroom. So I never wanted to create a fearful environment. So I always had to think of engaging ways. So one of my, most people don't know this about me, O'Brien. I don't think you even know. I would actually start writing backwards on the board. Like I can write back. Backwards. Like I could do a pre right now if you wanted to. Wow. Um, I'm just like, so I would just start writing backwards. And I'm telling you, when I say you could hear a pin drop, you could hear a pin drop. So, yeah. why I'm telling you these, please don't try to write backwards, everybody. Don't like scribble down and try to learn how to write backwards. But just the, the training, just, I mean, what is that? That's creating intrigue, right? Novelty, intrigue, like there's some mystery there. And like that captures people's attention, people's attention. And then that, like, now they're like a clean slate and you can get your message through. Right. Is and that kind of what's happening there? Absolutely. Yeah. And engagement, right. It'd be like, okay, what word should I put on the board? And they'd be like, my name. And I'm like, what's, what's the word? And then I would, so now I'm pulling. So getting back to one of my core philosophies is I never, I, I try never to push. I don't do fear. I don't overcome on top of you because if you're not ready and you're not there, but that's also my job is to create, and I, I love your word, that intrigue, that mystery and it's also engagement. Intrigue and mystery lasts for a short period of time. And to get you engaged, that creates that psychologically safe environment because now I'm inviting you into the process. And now to your point, blank slate, ready to rock and roll. Okay, so next thing, go to this, and now I can redirect. So absolutely. Yeah. So if I can distill that whole answer down to four words, it's going to be reps and attention to feedback. And I, I like one of the reasons I like doing this podcast so much is I like distilling down what are the principles that you can use cross-disciplinary for any type of people issue. It, it's principles and frameworks, I think, are so important because like we were talking about earlier, with it, with the right framework, you can solve almost any problem. And with the right principle, you can handle you know almost any situation. And so one of the principles that I've just seen play out, you hear comedians talk about this all the time, like how do you get better at comedy? by doing comedy. Like you, yeah, you can learn about the structure of a joke. You can learn, but to actually write a joke, stand up and then pay attention to the feedback that you get. That's how you learn what's funny or not, right? By finding all the things that aren't funny. And then you find the things that are, and you make them even funnier. And it's like, how do you get better at controlling the tone of your voice by speaking a lot and then speaking to crowds, trying to educate other people, and then seeing who's getting educated. Right. Like what's actually when is it getting through and people are allowing themselves to be educated? So if I, I just distill all that down, it's get the reps in, you know, whatever you're trying to do, get the reps in, pay attention to the feedback. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point in talking about frameworks and, and sort of theories, 
you know, the, the step before that, the pre-step is what is the value set in which you will be making the decision of which framework and theories you're going to choose. And I think getting really harnessing a group of people, if it's organizationally, internally, getting that diverse group of individuals on every level, right? I, I think so often people, you know, synonymously use, you know, diversity with, you know, racial, ethnic, or nationality diversity because we can see it or gender or sex diversity, right? Um, but there's so much more to it. You know, there's age, there's different geographical demographics, there's language, you know, differences. And I think it's so important to get as many different people in the room as possible to align on a core set of values, define what those are, because also people individually come with their own values. And this is what I'll, I talk a lot about from an executive coaching perspective or all my executive coaching clients. We always start with values because a lot of why people may not be happy within an organization or a decision that was made or so happy within an organization and so happy of why a decision was made was because they can see it and align with their values, right? So, and that's actually another framework. You know, you look at Ed Shine out of University of Chicago. He's like the culture, um, you know, sort of individual who's really researched this quite a bit. And one of his core philosophies and frameworks is identifying the values and making them explicit to build culture. So that way you're attracting the right people. And for those of you who can't see, I'm doing air quotes, right? The right people are those who are going to be aligned to your value set, who will innately potentially have the same assumptions you have, therefore will artifactually or through artifacts sort of espouse, but also actuate like the culture. They'll, they'll, they'll really be living the culture because you have similar values and assumptions. And then conversely, you could feel like a crazy person in an organization and feel like you're totally terrible and, and wrong and you're not doing your job because your values aren't aligned. It's not because you are, it's because your values aren't aligned. And so I think that's so important too, when you're going through change and transition or, or transformation, pay so close attention to any of the changes that you're making and always align them back to the values that you are, are sort of espousing that you have in the organization. Because the change that you're making could be directly in disalignment or misalignment, excuse me, or di- di- you know, diametrically opposing to a value that you have. One in particular, everybody always says, we have a collaborative value within an organization. So, okay, so collaborative or to collaborate is your value. Yet what I'm seeing is all of your offices are separated, right? In order to, you know, you're, you're geographically dislocated. You don't have the technology internally to collaborate. You expect that everybody writes up their own report at the end of the week. Their bonuses are aligned or attached to their individual goals. Okay, what? You've just made all these changes that actually have a value of autonomy and individualization, which is actually a very strong U.S. value. So when you think about collectivism or collaboration, what I would encourage everybody listening to this, no matter what function you're in, organizational design, development, organizational effectiveness, HR, people, culture, learning development, what decisions are you making and what values is that showcasing? Because those are your artifacts, right? And then what assumptions does that say about you? I'm not saying transactionally, you know, put new pictures up or use different words. That's a start. But truthfully, how are you designing your change and transformation to align with the core values so that they are actually living. And the new change you have is living the value. You don't have to do extra work to live the values. It's like an authenticity audit. Right. <laughs> yeah. I took a, a one-day class on negotiation from Chris Voss, who wrote the book, Never Split the Difference, which is a, a great book. And you talk about like 
liking to learn about language, like that book is very specific about what language you can, you should use and how it impacts the person you're talking to. But anyway, took the class and he was a FBI hostage negotiator. And he was, I can't remember if he said it in the class or in the book, but he said one of the biggest things that surprised him in the differences between talking to hostages and talking to business people is how much more business people lie. And he said, he said, hostages will mostly, will hostage takers will almost always tell you the truth and business people will almost always lie to you. And it's not that they're actually lying. It's just that the hostage taker is talking so much just from a pure place of like emotion. There's so much emotion that like what comes out of their mouth is usually true. Whereas business is like so guarded and so over, so overthought and not nobody's actually saying like, are we actually doing this stuff? Like nobody's really thinking about authenticity and therefore like a lot of what comes out of the mouth, like, isn't really true. It's not that they're actively lying to you on purpose, but it's like what they're saying isn't, isn't really true. And I just, I found that so interesting. Yeah. Uh, such well, an interesting I, observation. Yeah. <laughs> I love that because, you know, and, and you know this and you and I have talked about this so much that, you know, authenticity is so like thrown around all the time. Right. And it's like, yeah. why, like, why can't we just be like, why can't we be our authentic self? And when you think about it growing up, you're taught to be a certain way and you have to do this and here are the boxes that you need to check. And it, it's very family culture, you know, driven as well as the environment that you grow up in. Right. Then you get to corporate life or you get to your first job or you go to call or whatever you want to do, or you take an apprenticeship or you don't go to college and you focus on, you know, vocational elements, which are incredible. And everybody there is telling you, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to be. And it's like, hold on. First step is I need to step back. What are my values? What do I love? What do I care about? That's actually anybody who works with me and all my executive coaching clients who are listening to this are probably like, she does that really like chiming in. We always stop and we step back and we say, what do you love? What, what do you really love? Like, and it could be your dog. I don't care. It could be, I love going to France. It could be, I love cooking. It could be, you know, I love this element of my job. It could be, it can be anything. And the idea is, is once you figure out what you love really deep down, then the second question is always, and what are your values? And I give people a seven day values exercise that they go through where they can really identify what their key top three to four values are. And with those two things, we can design and create your most ideal future. And then we can get you there. Right. And through that, it's such a powerful and confidence building and competence building experience where you're actually building competence and confidence on yourself. So often I run across people, they're like, well, I didn't know that I could say that. Or I thought I had to do this because they told me. And, and that's because here, especially you know, in the US and a lot of other countries around the world, we have such a value of hierarchy, where if you have a title, you can do what you want. Well, look at what that's got us to bring back in politics, you know, look at the, the film industry, look at you know, a lot of things that are going on you know, across organizations. And that brings me back to your point. When you think about power structures and hierarchy, you know, I was so grateful to grow up and my father has been such an influence on my life that says like, you are a human and they are a human. No matter what, y'all humans. So at the end of the day, you have to go to sleep at night and lay your head down on your pillow. I remember him saying this to me and he was like, so do the, you know, what's right. Like make an impact, but hold your boundaries. And a, you know, no is a full sentence, period, exclamation point, question mark. And, you know, so often we're taught that we can't say no. And 
I actually love the framework to say it's the power of a positive no for all of you out there who want a book. It's one of my favorite. I teach a class on it. It's incredible. Um, the power of positive no allows you to affirm someone and say, hey, thanks so much for sharing that with me or reaching out. At this point, you know, I can't join your committee because you know, I've got these four other things. Keep me in mind and let me know next year when the position opens again. I've affirmed you. I've thanked you. I've brought you in. I've told you and I've set my limit, my boundary, which is my no, but then I've also given you my yes. So it's, a, it's an engagement, it's a proposal at the end. And I've seen this work so incredible with especially um, power structures and hierarchical structures where power is, a, is such a made-up thing. It's so made up. Like if you listen to somebody, right, you give them power. If you don't listen to them, you don't give them power. It's so simple. But why are we taught that this invisible construct, right, is you know, the end all be all. And, you know, this is probably a whole nother podcast that we can get into with human behavior and choice psychology and power and hierarchy. Um, and I talk a lot about this, especially when you're leading change and transformation initiatives or transition uh, initiatives. We have to think about the elements of power. Who's leading this? What do they look like? How are they, what language are they using? Is this going to be top down? That's a choice too, right? What are we going to share? That's political. What aren't we going to share is just as political. And I learned that at the University of Wisconsin too in the, the education program. What you choose is the same politically as what you don't choose. And you're making a concerted effort. So make sure that what you're not choosing, there are a lot of assumptions. So how I get around that and a technique that I use in Change and Transition is I'll make just like a slide or a T-chart. You guys, this is free, okay? Or you all, this is free. Make a T-chart. What's changing? What's not changing? Simple. What's changing? What's not changing? Put that up. You know, again, visualization is the easiest way to go about it. Well, I feel like we are, we let go of one trapeze, flew through the air and caught the other. And I feel like we're about to let go of that one here if we keep going any further. So this might be a perfect place to stop because I feel like if we go any further, our hands are coming off and we're launching through the air and we're going to be spending a lot more time on this, <laughs> on this podcast. Right. Yeah. No, and nobody who's listening has time for this, no. uh, at least in this episode. Maybe we'll do a round two. But I do ask a final question to just about everybody who comes on here. In your mind, what is the purpose of business? For me, it's my value set, which is to make a positive impact in your community, hands down, first and foremost. And that is me and my very humble and very biased opinion. So, you know, community, again, is one of my values. And actually, I have my values and art up on my wall here because um, I spend a lot of time looking at it, right? I try to practice what I preach. And one of my other values is uniqueness. And I have a picture of a fingerprint, right? And you know, there are all these companies out there. There are all these people out there, all these leaders out there. And what I can encourage you to do is how might you create the most positive impact on your community? And, and whatever that means for you, it could be you know, within your home, that could be your community. It could be yourself because that's your first and foremost community. It could be with your friends. It could also be larger within your department or organization. It could also be external to quote unquote business. It could be, you know, in community groups that you belong in or large scale globally, or even just one person that you meet when you're traveling, right? How are you using your unique abilities, your uniqueness to be you and leave that lasting impression so that, you know, our world is just more impacted by you. For me, that's what makes the world go around because business, right? What's the word we always use? What is your unique value proposition? What, what makes you unique? What is your unique value proposition? You know what it is? You. You cannot be someone else. They cannot be you. 
That is what business is about. It's about creating your identity and really leaning into it. And to get back to your word, authenticity, understanding what your values are so that... And I I guess I should probably say this too, because I'm in the habit of defining. For me, positive may not be someone else's or they might not think it's big enough. right? But what I know is for me, positive means I'm making an impact in my community and I'm leaving it even more effective or more efficient than when I started. Or I'm with that community. I'm not doing on to someone or a community. I'm doing something with them. So yeah, that's that's what I would say the purpose of business is. Leaving that really positive impact on, on the community or with the community um, and using your unique talents to do that. Beautiful. Stephanie, I appreciate your time. I appreciate all of your wisdom. I have to say this could set the bar for most referenced items that we're going to have to put in the show notes because just the amount of like books and frameworks and practitioners and tools and everything that you've talked about is awesome. So I will encourage everyone to spend a little bit of time with this one and and go through everything that we've talked about. So thank you for for coming on and, and sharing what you do and who you are. Yeah. Thank you so much, O'Brien. And thanks for having this. I love all of your podcasts and you've just had incredibly dynamic guests. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of that community too. And feel free to everybody out there, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always happy to answer messages or, or whatnot. So thank you. All right. Good luck with your change, everybody. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.